Hi, I'm Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. I think sometimes we as Catholics approach the mass readings as kind of like a sitcom instead of a series. What do I mean by that? You know, we, we show up, we hear the gospel reading. We wonder, oh, I wonder what story we're going to hear about Jesus today. And we hear about Jesus, you know, calming a storm, or maybe he's healing someone, or he's teaching a parable, or he's having a conversation with Peter, or he's multiplying loaves. And I wonder what he's going to do this week. And it's just, you know, each week is an isolated story. That's not how we should view the gospels, though. Because each of these individual gospel reading stories we hear Sunday after Sunday, each of them are part of a larger story. They come within a larger gospel. Like this year, they come from the narrative of Matthew's gospel primarily. But even more than that, each of these individual stories, these actions, these teachings, these healings in the life of Jesus are all part of Jesus's strategic plan. He's building a kingdom. He's announcing the kingdom of God and he's very intentional. Step by step, he does a first thing and then he does a second thing. And then the third thing flows from what happened before. And if you don't know the larger story, you're going to miss out a lot on what Jesus is trying to teach us Sunday after Sunday through the gospel. So we want to read them in the larger context. And I think that's especially true with what we just experienced this last week in the Sunday readings. I don't know if you caught it, but Jesus started taking us on a journey, a journey looking forward toward Jerusalem. It's the first time Jesus unveils where his ministry is ultimately leading. He unveils for the first time the cross. He tells the apostles, he says, now I need to go to Jerusalem. And when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and I'm going to be killed. Why did Jesus wait until now to tell the apostles this startling message about the cross? Why did he wait until this moment? What just happened that made Jesus want to tell the apostles, I got to go to Jerusalem and and I'm going to be killed? Why is he setting his eyes toward Jerusalem right now? What does this mean for for what's going to happen next in the story? I, I think this is such a crucial turning point in Jesus's public ministry. And most people don't make the connection. I want to bring the readings together for you. And when we do this, we're going to see so much about our Catholic faith. And we're going to learn so much about how the Bible really fits all together and how beautiful God's inspired word is. That's what we're going to take a look at in this week's podcast. So welcome to All Things Catholic. I'm your host, Edward Sri, And I want to give a warm welcome to anyone new who's been joining us the last few weeks here. Thank you for for checking out the show. And I want to make everybody aware, if you haven't gotten these, we offer free show notes that are available to everyone. All you need to do is go to ascensionpress.com slash allthingscatholic, and you can get the show notes showing up in your inbox each week. And I just want to Give a shout out, a big thanks to the folks at Ascension Press who produced this show and helped get it out and put together the show notes for us. But gives you a little more background information, some of the quotes we look at. And again, you can go to ascensionpress.com slash allthingscatholic and you can sign up for those show notes there. But let's talk about what's happening in Matthew's gospel. I think that there's four key moments back to back to back to back that happen. And, 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 and you can't look at these four moments in isolation. You got to see the connection there. And it's so beautiful. Matthew just lays it out. And you read about this in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13, all the way up to, oh, about verse 
24. Uh, and there's so much going on here, but I want to break it down, make it really easy for you to see the connections. And if you understand what happens here these in these four moments, and it's mostly between Jesus and Peter, well, it's going to really help you understand the rest of the Sunday readings for the rest of this year. It's going to really help you understand this journey to Jerusalem that Jesus is going to take and what happens when he gets to Jerusalem. So if you, if you really understand these four moments here in Matthew 16, uh, it's going to pay a lot of dividends for you for the rest of the Sunday masses you attend here. So let's take a look at that. So first of all, in Matthew chapter 16, uh, Peter is with Jesus and the apostles, and, and they're up in Caesarea Philippi. This is the farthest north that we know Jesus goes, uh, according to the Gospels, in his public ministry. And he's in Caesarea Philippi, and he asks the apostles this question, who do people say that I am? And then he makes the question very personally. He says, okay, uh, who do you all say that I am? I've been with you for a number of years here now. I've, I've, I've been investing in you. We spent a lot of time together. Who do you think I am? And of course, it's Peter. You know, he's the first one to come out. And he, and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I want, this is the first moment. This is Peter's confession of faith. You read about this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. We, we contemplated this moment uh, in, in, in two, two Sundays ago in the Sunday readings, Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Peter's confession of faith. I want you to just feel the weight of, of what just happened there. You see, if you've been paying attention to Jesus's public ministry, if you're one of the apostles and you've been traveling with Jesus, you know, for, for all these months, these years, and all of a sudden Peter says this, you realize just how momentous this is. This is like a climactic moment in your entire life as a disciple with Jesus. Why? Because, you know, Jesus has been announcing a kingdom and there's been many signs and wonders and miracles accompanying his, his kingdom announcement. And, and there's a lot of hopes that Jesus might be the, the son of David, that maybe he'll be the, the Christos, the Christ, the anointed one. In other words, the Messiah. There are all these prophecies about a future son of David that would come, a future anointed one, a future king that would come and be anointed, and he would liberate the people from their enemies. He would drive the Romans off the land. That's what many of the Jews in the first century were hoping for. And, and, and many people in Israel were hoping Jesus might be the, uh, the, the anointed one, the Messiah. In fact, if, if you were Philip or James or Andrew there that day, you were probably hoping that Jesus was the Messiah. Some people hinted at that hope, but no one actually came out and said it. Peter's the first one to just come right out and say it. You are the Christ. And everyone, as soon as you hear Peter say that, you're like, ooh, he just said it. He said what we've all been thinking, what our hearts have been longing for. And, and you're now paying attention. What's Jesus going to do with that information? Is he going to deny it? Is he going to accept it? What's going to happen? And as you know, Jesus accepts the title. And he says, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. So you can imagine the apostles, they're ecstatic. Everything they've been longing for, everything they've been hoping for is, is true. Jesus really is the fulfillment of all prophecy. He really is the Messiah. He really is the king. So you, you could just picture this, this, this moment as being a turning point for your life as a disciple with Jesus. So that's the first moment I want us to consider. Matthew 16, verse 16, Peter's confession of faith. Peter explicitly comes out and says that you're the Messiah and Christ accepts the title. What happens next? As a result, in verses 17 through 19, uh, 
Jesus ends up doing a lot for Peter here. He changes Peter's name. You're not just going to be Simon. You're going to be Peter. Uh, and, and that's, that's significant. That alone is significant because when somebody has a name change in a Bible, in the Bible, it usually points to not just like someone getting a nickname. It, it, it describes a, a change in their, their role, their mission that they're being sent on by God. Like Abram's name was changed to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude of nations, because that's Abram's going to be that great father of faith. And then uh, you think about someone like uh, Jacob in the Old Testament. His name is changed to Israel because he's going to be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. So name changes are powerful moments in someone's life. And Peter's undergoing a name change here. His name is Peter, not any ordinary name. It means rock. That wasn't a common name in first century Judaism. Uh, what is this rock? What is it? What is Jesus talking about? Why does he give Peter the strange name rock? Well, He says, Peter, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What rock do you think Jesus had in mind? A number of layers of meaning and explanation here. I'm going to just pull out one layer I think is important, and I think very primary in Jesus' mind. I think Jesus is thinking about the most famous rock in Israel the Eben Shediah. I think if you were Peter or John or James there hearing this that day, when you hear Jesus say, you are the rock and on this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think you were thinking of the Eben Shediah. What was the Eben Shediah? This is the foundation stone of the temple, the most famous rock in first century Judaism. And the Jews told many stories about this rock. So we know that the foundation stone of the temple, so it's there in the temple, and the Jews would sacrifice, and then they would pour the blood over this rock. And But they told stories about this rock, various traditions, pious legends that Noah's ark found rest at this very spot on this rock. And David went and battled monsters underneath this rock, because underneath this rock, there was this shaft that went down to the underworld, to, to, to where the demons were. And, and, the, and the Eben Shediah, this foundation, stone was over that shaft under the temple and it, it, it plugged up the, the powers of hell, keeping the powers of hell at bay. Think about that. When Jesus, Jesus doesn't just say, Hey, I'm going to call you rock. He says to Peter, you're rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is basically saying, Peter, you're going to be like the Eben Shediah. You're going to be like that foundation stone of the temple. You know, through you and your role you're going to play in the new house I'm building, the new house of the Lord, the new temple, the church. Through the role you and your successors will play in this church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. So what an important role this is for Peter. And many other things could be said, but the the, the most important image that Jesus uses comes in, in Matthew 16, verse 19, when he says, uh, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. You know, that, that image of the keys isn't just a random image. It's not like, well, okay, how do I describe Peter's authority is going to have. Well, I'll use the image of keys. That sounds like, you know, if you have a key to something, something that opens and shuts, that, that, that sounds like you're in charge, you know? You know, you're in charge of the city, you're in charge of the house, and so I'll, I'll make, I'll give Peter the keys. No, no, that's not what's going on here. Jesus didn't just on the fly make up a nice metaphor, a nice symbol. No, no, no. We want to interpret Jesus's symbol of the keys in light of the first century Jewish mindset, because every Jew knows what Jesus is talking about. We want to not impose our interpretation of what keys mean onto Jesus. No, we want to understand 
how did the Bible use the symbol of keys of the kingdom? And if you go back to Isaiah chapter 22 in the Old Testament, it's clear that the keys of the kingdom pointed to an important role, an important office, an important leader in the kingdom, the alabait, the head of the household, the master of the palace or the prime minister. You see, the, the, the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom of the Old Testament, uh, there was always the king and the king was in charge, but the king vested his authority with a certain man, the alabait, the one that was literally the head of the household or the master of the palace. He was the steward, if you will. He was the one in charge of the day-to-day affairs of the kingdom. He wasn't the king. He had no authority on his own, but the king granted him authority. He entrusted all the affairs of his household, the affairs of the kingdom to this man to be in charge of it. So he's like a a master, a, a prime minister, a steward, the head of the household, literally. And the role of the Albayit, the head of the household, took on great significance, especially when the king was away. When he was away on a diplomatic mission or a military campaign, he's outside of the borders of the kingdom. And who do people turn to? to be in charge. They're, they're turning to the Albayit. They're turning to the master of the palace. And if you were to read Isaiah 22, you, it becomes clear that this, this person wasn't just a figurehead. He had real authority. He had a, was given a royal robe and a ring to symbolize his authority. Uh, most of all, he was given the keys of the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom. So the symbol of the keys points to the role of the Albayit. Think about what this would mean if you were one of the apostles and you hear this conversation between Jesus and Peter and you hear that Jesus is giving the keys of the kingdom to Peter. What would that have meant to you? You would know, well, Jesus has been announcing a kingdom and and that, and that Jesus is claiming to be the great king, the Messiah, the anointed one. And if there's going to be a king in this kingdom, he's probably going to have the Albaid. He's probably going to have his head of the household, his steward, his master of the palace. And sure enough, he says to Peter, yes, I'm the king. I'm the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah. You're going to be my Albaid. You have the keys of the kingdom. So there's a lot here if you think about all that's happening. So let's walk through what's going on in Matthew 16. The first moment, Peter's the first one to claim, you're the Messiah. You're the king. Jesus accepts the title. The second moment, now Jesus is setting up Peter as that rock, like the foundation stone of the temple, the rock of his church, the foundation for his church. And he gives Peter the the the, the keys of the kingdom. He gives Peter the role of Albaid. That's going to lead to this third moment, this third moment in Matthew chapter 16, verse 20. At the end of this, I mean, again, if you're one of the, you're just, you know, Andrew and Philip, you're just blown away by all this happening. Wow. Jesus really is the Messiah. Wow. He just made our friend Peter. I mean, this guy, we'd go fishing with him. And now this guy, he's, he, he's the prime minister. He's the, the, the steward of this kingdom. He got the keys, the kingdom. This is incredible. And then Jesus says to, to all the apostles, shh, shh, don't tell anyone yet. Keep this on the down low. <laughs> That's what it says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 20. Then Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, why is he doing that? Why, why is 
Jesus being so secretive here? <laughs> you know, I thought, you know, he wants the world to know that he's the Messiah, right? You know, so why is he telling the apostles, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah. Is this like maybe reverse psychology? He's thinking, all right, if I tell them don't say anything. You know, these apostles always, you know, get things wrong and they, they're a bunch of knuckleheads. So I'll just, I'll just tell them, don't tell anyone. And then they'll go out and tell the world. <laughs> Is that what's going on? Some reverse psychology? I don't, I don't think that's what's it, what's going on here. I, I think what's happening is Jesus realizes he is the true Messiah King. And he's telling his apostles this now, but if they tell the world, he's going to be killed right away up here in Caesarea Philippi. And you see, in the first century Jewish world, if you go around claiming to be a king, you go around claiming to be the Messiah, you're going to attract the wrong kind of attention. Uh, in other words, the Romans would view you as a threat. Uh, and, and then you'll, you'll, be, you'll be destroyed, you'll be killed, your movement will stop right away. And Jesus has more business to do with the apostles. And that's what we're going to see next. There's still some important work, important training that, that, that he has to do with the apostles. They're going to have, they still need a little more formation. So he, he doesn't want to be taken away right now. And most of all, the king is supposed to establish his kingdom, not in Caesarea Philippi, but where's the Messiah going to establish the kingdom in Jerusalem, the city of David? That's where the king resides. And it was expected that one day the Messiah would come to Jerusalem and establish the kingdom there. And so he doesn't want to be taken away up in Caesarea Philippi. He tells the apostles, I'm the Messiah, but shh, don't tell anyone yet. He needs to go to Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, he'll let the people know. And that's when he'll be killed. So this is a, a third moment now is to see it's the secret of the Messiah, the, the, how he, he's keeping a messianic secret with the apostles. He's unveiled who he really is to them. He's accepted the title as Messiah, but he tells them, don't tell anyone yet. Let's wait until I get to Jerusalem. Finally, the last moment comes in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. And this is what we just read about in the readings this past Sunday. Uh, Jesus says to the apostles, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show the apostles, the disciples, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Why from that time? Why is it now? Jesus begins talking about going to Jerusalem and going to be killed. Why now? What just happened? Why didn't he wait a little while or why didn't he tell him sooner? Think about it. What just happened? Jesus announced he's the Messiah and he set up Peter as his alibi to be his head of the household, to be the, the steward. And do you remember what, what the steward was in charge of the day-to-day -day affairs of the kingdom? But when did the steward, the albayit, the head of the household, when, when did he, his office, his role take on the greatest responsibility? Do you remember? It took on the greatest importance when the king was away. When the king was away, especially then everyone turned to the albayit to keep the affairs of the kingdom going. Now that Jesus has his albayit, now that he has his steward, his master of the palace, now Jesus can go away. He can begin his journey down toward Jerusalem soon. He, he can go and be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and be killed. Why? Because he will be killed. He'll rise again and he'll ascend into heaven, but his kingdom will go on because now that he's away, 
the kingdom still has the albaid. It still has the steward, the one with the keys of the kingdom that's still leading this kingdom movement. So it all fits here. You know, in other words, before this moment, Jesus wouldn't have been ready to go. He had a group of disciples. They had a lot of training, a lot of teaching, a lot of experience, but they didn't have their designated leader. They didn't have the albaid in place for this kingdom. Jesus couldn't go away yet. But now that he has his albaid and now the keys of the kingdom are in Peter's hands, Jesus can move on. He can begin setting his sights on Jerusalem. And then the kingdom will continue and flourish under Peter's leadership and the rest of the apostles. But this idea of what Jesus reveals here, that he's going to be killed, I mean, they're shocked by this, right? The apostles are shocked. Peter even says, God forbid, Lord, that this ever happened to you. Wait a second. You're supposed to be our great king. You're supposed to be the Messiah. In other words, even the apostles are expecting Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem triumphant and he's going to liberate us from all of our enemies, especially from the Romans. And, you know, so even the apostles still kind of view Jesus's kingdom in this, in these more political categories, if you will. Uh, and, and Jesus has, has a lot of training to do with them still. It's very apparent. The fact that Peter and the apostles so misunderstand what this kingdom is about and they're shocked about this, that uh, Jesus has a lot of work to do with them. And that's what he's going to do. And this is what I want you to pay attention to. And the readings coming up ahead in the next several Sundays, we're going to be reading about Jesus kind of recalibrating what it means to be Messiah in the apostles' head. What is this kingdom really all about? Because you could imagine the apostles' excitement if Jesus is the king and Peter just got the keys, the kingdom. You, you know, you're James and John. You're thinking, hey, you know, we're next in line. We're part of that inner circle. What are we going to get? You know, and all the apostles are thinking, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to go to Jerusalem. That's awesome. It's kingdom time. And we'll ride Jesus's coattails all the way to the, the throne of glory in Jerusalem. We're going to have a great kingdom, positions of authority. We'll be really famous. You can picture that temptation there. That's why Jesus immediately, as soon as it's revealed, he's the Messiah. As soon as it's revealed that he's going to Jerusalem, he has to tell them why. I'm not going to Jerusalem for worldly glory, power, and might. No, I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed because that's what this kingdom is about. This kingdom is going to be about laying down my life. And that's why he says, and if you want to be my disciple still, you got to take up your cross and follow me. Whoa, take up your cross. That's shocking. A cross is like, you know, like was like the electric chair of the, of the first century Roman world. It was the primary instrument of, of, of torture and, and execution. The idea of take up your cross is a shocking image. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to go to the cross and you need to as well. Are you sure you want to keep following me as a disciple? Because that's what this kingdom is about. It's going to be about taking up your cross. In Matthew 18, 1, Jesus is going to talk about like, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Uh, you know, that's what the disciples, they're still debating is, hey, we're going to Jerusalem. It's kingdom time. I wonder who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus says, no, you've got this wrong. It's going to be about humility. Whoever is humble like a child, they will be the greatest. He's going to talk to them in Matthew 18 verses 15 and 20 that, that, this kingdom is going to be about forgiveness. It's not going to be about driving off our enemies and the Romans and the Gentiles. It's going to be about forgiving. If your brother sins against you, you know, you got to be willing to forgive. 
especially in Matthew 18 verses 21 through 22. You got to be able to forgive 70 times, seven times, he says. So you got to be able to forgive endlessly. This, this kingdom is going to be about service and sacrifice. In Matthew 20, you'll hear a reading later this fall about uh, two of the disciples have their mom go in intercede and say, Hey, Jesus, could, could, could my two sons sit at your left and at your right? And Jesus says, woman, you have no idea what you're asking for. When I establish my kingdom on a cross, do you want them on my left and right? Do you know what that means? They're going to be crucified. <laughs> That's what this kingdom's about. It's not about entering into worldly glory. The son of man came to serve, not to be served and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. I hope you're seeing that these gospel stories, what we've seen in the last few weeks on the Sunday liturgy mass and the gospel readings coming up ahead in the coming weeks, they're not random stories. They're not just isolated little conversations and teachings and healings about Jesus. No, 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 no. They all fit together. They're all part of his plan. Uh, and we've just looked in one little section. We've looked at just, you know, one little chapter in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 16. And we saw these four crucial moments and we see how one flows to the next and to the next and into the next. The entire gospels are like this. If you can take time to know the gospels better, to, to understand them, you will see the beauty of your Catholic faith, the beauty of what Jesus is doing and understanding him and loving him more. Uh, all that I'm drawing from is from my, my latest book that's on Matthew's gospel and it walks step by step this way through the ministry of Jesus, according to, to Matthew's narration of it. It's called God with us. Encountering Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll put some information in the show notes for it. You can find this in, this book on my website. Again, it's called God With Us, Encountering Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. If you want to break open Matthew's Gospel for yourself or for your family to understand how the stories fit together, check out that book, God With Us. Thanks so much for listening, my friends. As always, you can reach out to me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can contact me on my website, edwardsri.com. That's edwardsri.com. And don't forget, if you want those show notes, they're, they're at ascensionpress.com slash all things Catholic. Ascensionpress.com slash all things Catholic. Thanks and God bless.